Altogether, this is sermon number 48 that we've done on the life of Moses. We did uh, the book of Exodus and then Leviticus uh, two summers ago, then last summer, and then Numbers and Deuteronomy this time. So 48th sermon, and this will be the last one. So spoiler alert, Moses dies. It's going to happen, so guard your heart. Uh, I mean, for several weeks now, we've been saying in Deuteronomy, this is the end of Moses' life. He's not going to be crossing over into the promised land. God's told him he's going to die before he crosses over. But we've been saying that week after week. But this, this week, I really mean it. Okay, so by the end of this sermon, Moses will be dead. So brace yourself for that. So, <laughs> we are going to look at this, uh, these four uh, chapters, at least parts of it. We can't deal with everything. But I'm going to, instead of really three points, give you three questions. Three things that I want you to think about and and to meditate on. And the first of these, especially from chapter 31, is this. When your story is done, will someone else carry on? Will someone else carry on where you left off, picking up that mantle and, and running? And so let's read chapter 31. We'll read 1 through 8 to begin with here, and this talks about Moses and and Joshua. So Moses continued to speak these words to all Israel, and he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I read that correctly, 120. I am no longer able to go out and come in. And the Lord has said to me, you shall not go over this Jordan. He wouldn't cross the Jordan River into the promised land. The Lord your God himself will go over before you and he will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dispossess them and Joshua will go, will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. And the Lord will do to them as he did to Shihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and to their land when he destroyed them. And the Lord will give them over to you and you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you, and he will not leave you or forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him, In sight of all the people, be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give to them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Now skip ahead to verse 14. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the day approaches when you must die. There's a day that approaches for all of us. Call Joshua and present yourself in the tent of meeting that I may commission him. And Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tent of meeting, and the Lord appeared in a tent, in the tent, in a pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood over the entrance of the tent. So there you have the official uh, commissioning of, of Joshua to take over uh, leadership of Israel, uh, to take over where Moses um, wouldn't be going on. As I mentioned, we can't read everything in these chapters. Uh, there's, there, it would just take too much time, uh, but I hope that you still will go through and read the parts that, that we missed uh, in all of this. Actually, I hope that sometimes you would make it a, uh, 
a goal for yourself to, to read through the whole scripture if you've never done that or if it's been quite a while to do that because one of the things that you get when you read through all of scripture, first of all, you get the whole counsel of God's word, but there's also something that kind of strikes you kind of emotionally because as you read, you get attached to some of these, some of these characters, some of these biblical uh, heroes that are in the story and you, you read about Abraham and uh, you read about him for several chapters and his time in the story and then you find out, well, he ends up dying and then his, his time in the story is over. And you read about Isaac, and he's there, and then Isaac dies, and it keeps going with Jacob and Joshua, and then Moses, and every one of these, and you keep going, and David, and they, they die. They're in the story for part of the story, but they come and they go. They have their time, but it, but it doesn't last forever. And it just helps us to realize, as we're struck by this, that everyone comes and goes. We all have our time that is in this, this big story that God has put together, this big story uh, that God has created from, from beginning to end. We each play our part for a time, and then our time comes to an end, and the story goes on. And so when we think of this, we need to think about what is going to happen beyond our time in the story, and are we preparing for what happens next? Are we preparing for there to be a legacy Notice everyone comes and goes, but also notice that Moses, he didn't retire early, okay? He was 120 years old. And I know there's no one here that's 120 years old, so I can say that, that he was getting up there, okay? So if you think that you have put in your time, okay, that you have, you have served and now it's time, you know, that you can just retire from the Christian life, retire from helping people and doing ministry and being a servant of Christ, I want you to think about Moses and think of where he was at. I mean, he was, he was 80 years old already when he, when he led the people out of, out of Egypt. 120 years old, yeah, that's a long time, but still it is not forever. His time was coming to an end, and it was time for someone else to carry on. And we see that God chose Joshua uh, to be the one to carry on. So I want to think about this. Think about what does it mean to, uh, to raise up other people, to pass on leadership, to train others in the next generation for this. And I want to think about it from the perspective of Moses, and if you're at a Moses stage in life, and also what it'd be like to be um, uh, Joshua and his stage in life, that he's, he's up and coming. So first of all, I want to talk to the Moseses, or whatever the plural of Moses is, the, the, the Mosai, Okay, and in one sense, we're always doing this because we don't know when our time is is going to be, and whether it's uh, from this life or from a job or moving from place to place. Uh, but we think about Moses. We need to ask this question: You know, are you prepared for someone else to carry on after you, or do we think it's all about me? And it's all about what I can do here, and there's no thought to what happens later on. We need to have a vision that extends beyond our time in the story. We need to have a, a legacy mindset. Because some people, they act that it's just, well, it's about me and my time in the story, and kind of that's, that's the whole thing, and that's all there is. And, well, who cares what happens later on? Or maybe if things fall apart when I leave, or when you leave, that we say, well, great, then everyone can see how important I was, and I held everything together, and so bring me glory when everything you know, just uh, falls apart. But that's not what we want. 
We need to ask ourselves, are you prepared to pass on your responsibilities when the time comes? Now, again, this doesn't mean having a retirement attitude. It doesn't mean saying, I did my time, and now, you know, just these young people, they can do it, and I don't have to do anything else. Remember, again, Moses, 120 years old. And we're also going to see the way that he modeled this, the way that he mentored Joshua. It wasn't 100% Moses, and then just one day, he's done, and then it's just Joshua. We're going to see there was a handing off of leadership. There was training that was involved. And so you have to ask, are you preparing others to carry on for you, to invest in them, to train, to, to mentor, to equip? So on the Moses side of things, there's one sense where we need to all be thinking this way. And again, this is whether you are uh, one of our senior members here, or maybe you're a senior in high school or going to be, and you're trying to prepare the other youth to carry on uh, with the ministry and the, the work in the youth group. So this is, this is for all phases of life, really. But then there's also, I think, a lesson for the Joshua's. You know, as we're, we're coming up into leadership and getting to that point where we need to uh, be uh, doing more and taking that responsibility and it being handed over to us. Because there's not going to be these other people to, to do it forever. You know, eventually it falls on the next generation of leaders. And I think it's important for us to realize and to take a look at Joshua and what happened, the things that happened in his life to prepare him for this. Because I think we have a lot of um, younger generations, and this includes my generation as well, uh, and, and down that have this attitude of, well, it's our time now. We're just entitled. You know, get off the stage and let us run things. And it doesn't matter what we've done to, to get ready for this. It doesn't matter if we've been preparing ourselves or equipping ourselves. It doesn't matter if we've been doing nothing but, you know, playing Xbox and letting you do everything. But, but now it's our time and suddenly we're going we're gonna to take over and make all the decisions. That's not the attitude that Joshua had. And that's not the healthy attitude that we should have either. That, that, that's arrogant to say, get off the stage. It's my time to, to lead and shine and be in the spotlight. Joshua was conditioned before he was commissioned. We see that in his life. He was Moses' assistant, it said, since his youth. This is a long time. And think of what that means, that he was, he was shadowing Moses. He was around him. He was learning from him. Think of all the wisdom that he picked up from Moses. The things that Moses taught, the example of his leadership, the way he responded to things. And of course, being alongside and assisting Moses for all those years had to be huge. It had to be what helped prepare him for leadership when it was his time to do this. The watching, the helping, the learning. There were opportunities that Joshua was given where he was able to gain experience and to prove himself by being a good leader. Even way back in Exodus 17, Moses had Joshua lead the battle against the Amalekites. And so when we're given uh, opportunity to lead and to do well, it's important to do our best. You know, there may be failures, but we need to try hard and to learn from these things and to, to prove ourselves as, as responsible and as ones that can learn. And he had developed the character that he needed. This wasn't just given to him just because, well, it's, it's your time now and you're the next generation. This was someone that had, had godly character, if you remember back when they went to spy out the land, there were 12 spies that were sent. 
and they reported back, and 10 of them said, we can't do this. Yeah, okay, maybe God wants us to go into the promised land and conquer it, but these people are like, giants, we're never going to be able to do this. And there's only two of them that said, are you kidding? We need to do this. God is with us. He's told us to do this. And that was Caleb, and it was, was Joshua. So here we see his, his character, his faith, his belief in God. And it wasn't just a, a character that he had uh, just mustering of himself. He had the Spirit of God within him. In Numbers 27, it has this part where even before what we've just read today, uh, it was announced that Joshua was going to be taking over, and he was given some responsibility to help Moses to lead. And in that, Numbers 27, 18 says, So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hands on him. So he was, he was a believer. He had faith in God, he, and he had the Spirit of God in him. In the Old Testament, not everyone had this. For us as New Testament believers, it says that if, if you don't have the Spirit, you don't have Christ. So we have the privilege of all having the Spirit of God in us, empowering us and training us. If you want to be a godly Christian leader, I mean, the first thing is come to Christ and trust him. And so have this the renewal that comes inside and the power of the Holy Spirit living within you. So that's another thing that, that Joshua had. And then we see the pattern here as well, because in Numbers 27, it goes on and it says, Make him stand before Eleazar the priests and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. So, um, so Joshua was apprenticed by Moses, and he was given delegated authority. And it wasn't all at once. He was given some of this to work alongside Moses, uh, to, to, um, to continue to, to ment- be mentored by him. He led with Moses before going solo. And that can be such a helpful way to train up new leaders as well, too. Not just, okay, it's yours now, sink or swim, handing over the reins. But no, we'll do this together. And yeah, maybe at first I'm still in charge, but you're going to do it with me. And I'm going to gradually give you more responsibility and more authority to do this. Until the new leader is developed to the point where uh, he or she has, is confident and trained and ready to, to take things over. And Joshua, he, he put in his time. This wasn't something that just instantly he got. Um, he was a spy 40 years ago. And at the time when God... Uh, judged the people for their rebellion. Uh, It said all the people that were uh, 20 years and older weren't going to go into the promised land except for Caleb and and Joshua. So it's likely, you do the math on that, um, okay, Moses is 120, but uh, at this time Joshua, is he's not a little kid. He's probably 60 plus years old. So he's had time as well. Not that you need to always wait until that long, but Joshua didn't expect instant leadership. Again, he was conditioned before he was commissioned. And so for the aspiring leaders out there, the people here that God is going to need you in this world, in this church, in our society, you let yourself be conditioned by God. Shadow some godly people. Uh, guys, find some, some leaders, that, some godly men that are older than you, and, and be around them absorb what you can from them. And, and ladies, find some, a godly lady that, or ladies that can pour into you and mentor you. 
And it's a good thing when we have both of this. I see this happening a lot of places in our church. I'm thankful for this on our deacon board. We have a blend of uh, some men on the deacon board past several years that have had lots of life experiences and maturity and some younger guys. And I think it's so helpful for them to be working together and to be acquiring the, the wisdom uh, from the older men that's being poured into those that are younger. That's just a healthy principle. So when your story is done, will someone carry on? Joshua is commissioned to carry on after Moses. Our time on earth here is going to come and go, and we need to accept the fact that others will carry on without us one day, and we need to do what we can to prepare them well. So that's the first question. Second question here, this gets a little heavy. This gets pretty heavy, but we're going to see this is especially what we're going to read in chapter 32 in the Song of Moses, although we're going to read a little bit at the end of 31. But the question I want you to think about is this. Think of the end of life and what comes after. This is really important. When your story is done, will you face God's vengeance? What will it be like for you when, it's, when this life is over? Will there be vengeance? Will there be judgment? Wrath, hell. These unpleasant things that we don't like talking about, but we need to. So let's read uh, starting 30, chapter 31, starting with verse 24, because this gives a good introduction to the Song of Moses, and we'll read some snippets of it. When Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, take the book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Okay, so first of all, not words of encouragement right there. He's like, I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. And we've been seeing that week after week after week. Um, even when things are going well, it's still at their heart. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Moses is saying, when I'm not a, you're this bad now, you know, and this is in your heart under the surface at least. How much more when I'm not here to, to keep you in line? Verse 28, assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the works of your hands. Then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly of Israel. So he's going to give this song here. Uh, that is, it's a prophecy saying that after he goes, um, whether it's one generation or the next, it's going to happen where these people are going to fall away, they're going to do wicked things, worship other gods, and there would be judgment for this, that you don't do this and have, have no consequences. So this is a huge warning to them. So it'd be nice if at the end of here we're finishing with Moses, we could just have happy things and just encouragement and, you know, fluffy thoughts and, and pillows for y'all, but there's important things we need to consider. All right, but this starts off good. Okay, the beginning of this, okay, it's going to be great because God is faithful, God is good. So chapter 32, Give ear, O heaven, and I will speak and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew. 
like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb, for I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are, are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So all these things are true about God. God is good, he is faithful, he is a God of justice. Problem is, sinners, we, <laughs> that's not what we're like as sinners. Because then, uh, it's, it's good till now, but now things in the passage uh, go south. Verse 5, they have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you, and established you? Let's skip down to verse 15. But Jeshurun grew fat. This is a reference to the people of Israel. And kicked, you grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods. So again, this is a prophecy of what would happen, what people would do in the future. They're sacrificing to demons and worshiping all these idols. And you read, keep reading in the Old Testament, this is exactly what happens over and over again, actually. To new gods that had come recently. And by the way, if you have a recent god that's, that's just brand new, you know, that's not a real god. Okay, that's not an everlasting god there, by the way. Um, whom your fathers had never dreamed of. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the god who gave you birth. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them and I will see what their end will be for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. And I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. For fire is kindled by my anger and it burns to the depth of Sheol, devours the earth and its increase, and sets on fire the foundation of the mountains. And it goes on, and, and you can read that, but you see here, it's talking about the Lord's anger. He uses that of God. It talks about wrath. It talks about, talks about judgment. At one place in verse 21, this is important. It says, I will make them jealous with those who are no people. This is foreshadowing, predicting that eventually God would bring the gospel message and salvation to the Gentiles, to those that are not of, of Jewish Hebrew descent, uh, probably like most people that are in this room. Romans eleven eleven says, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. So we see this fulfilled in the New Testament. So the song goes on and it talks about God's going to judge Israel through Israel's enemies and that uh, those enemies would also be judged by God. But one last verse I want you to look at, and I want to talk about this for a little bit, is verse 35. In 35 it says this, Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. For the day of calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. So again, as I said right now, not, not the most uplifting verses uh, that we have here, but, in, but important ones that we need to consider. That what this is teaching us as well. One thing I want to draw out is Deuteronomy 32, 35 here. 
is the text, especially that second line, for the time when their foot shall slip. That was the text used for what is uh, probably the most famous sermon that was ever given, at least in the English, English language. And maybe something that you've heard of, maybe, maybe not. Um, I remember actually reading uh, this work in, in high school, in public school, and maybe they, they still do, maybe they don't. Uh, but it's a work by Jonathan Edwards called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And the text for this sermon, yeah, was Deuteronomy 32, 35. And so in, in his uh, translation, he was using it as, it, their foot shall slide in due time. So Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by uh, Jonathan Edwards. This was in the early 1700s. So you think of when this is. He is a, uh, this is in the Americas, but this is before the Revolutionary War. So this is colonial times. And he was a, well, kind of an American Puritan uh, pastor and theologian. And he was part of what was called the First Great Awakening. Sometimes we think, well, America's, you know, always been deeply in love with God. But one thing we have to realize, it's because of the, these, these great awakenings that there really are so much Christian heritage in our, in our country. Because uh, in Jonathan Edwards' time, people were required to go to church, but they went and they didn't care. You know, they just endured their time and talked with the people next to them because they were cool to the things of God. They really didn't care. They weren't grasped by this. And a lot of them, they, they weren't really even saved at all. They didn't care. And what happened in this time called the Great Awakening is through uh, Jonathan Edwards and, and other preachers that presented the gospel and the Holy Spirit did a surprising work through this. And you had just multitudes of people just all of a sudden getting saved and, and for real. And uh, times where it was just, uh, uh, just incredibly dramatic how these salvations uh, and responses of the congregation were. Now, when Jonathan Edwards preached this, he was not one of these, you know, uh, preachers that you think that's, you know, super elegant or he is uh, just, you know, raising his voice and yelling and spitting all over the place as he talks about, you know, hellfire and, and damnation. He was actually uh, very reserved, okay? He may have even, you know, read the message. One person that writes about it said he, he gave it as if he was staring at the, the bell rope at the back of the meeting house, but it was the way that he presented it, uh, just the deliberateness, the, the heaviness of his words, and also the, the truth behind it. And a lot of the imagery that he painted, warning people of the dangers of hell that they were in danger of. And so when he gave this message uh, to um, the people of this meeting house, and so many of them were, were unconverted, uh, as he went, people started moaning and crying. And as he went, it just kept getting louder and worse. And the whole sermon, it really does get more intense as it goes on. And people started shrieking in, the, in a message, you know, and calling out like, you know, I'm going to hell. You know, how can I be saved? And it got so bad that he never actually finished the message. They had to stop it at one point, And the different ministers that were there had to attend to the different people and uh, to counsel them about salvation with Christ. Uh, before they could kind of pray and sing a song and just kind of conclude things, because everyone was so just absolutely shook up by this. So that's what happened. I said it's one of the most famous 
probably the most famous sermon, at least in English, it's also, I think, the most misunderstood. Because when people read it, they often use an example of, you know, those, those sick, twisted Christians that are all into the wrath of God and this evil, angry God that's just into torturing people and it's all sadistic. And that's how they make it out. And I've heard that from people talking about it as literature. I've heard that there are pastors that will say that. Say, we don't, you know, we just want a, a love, a God of love and, and, and goodness. And, you know, this is, this is like a horrible, sadistic portrait of God and sinners in the hands of an angry God. And sometimes they'll read, I'm going to read you a few excerpts of this. One of the most famous ones that they read is, it's kind of called the, the spider passage. And it's very descriptive, okay? And people point to this and say, uh, see, this is this terrible God that's just trying to torture you. Edwards says this, The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or a loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. And he looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince, and yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire at every moment. I've heard that described as if what God is doing is he's torturing people, like taking these good, innocent people and just dangling them over, over the flames of hell, you know, to scare them and ha, ha, ha. He's got this like wicked glee. And that's how people view this. I think part of that is because most people today have different theology than, than Edwards and the Bible, okay? Things that, that Edwards and the Bible teach, one, is that we are sinners, Okay, and it is deep. We are not good people that naturally deserve heaven. We are sinners to our core. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, we come into this world with sinful, twisted hearts. I believe the Bible teaches what is called total depravity. That, I mean, the sin goes all the way down deep into our hearts. And one of the things I think we've seen by reading uh, these books of Moses, you know, this is examples of what people are like. We keep sinning. We keep rebelling. I think total depravity is, is real. I, on one hand, I think you either, there are two types of people, either you believe in total depravity or you have never been the parent of toddlers, okay? We are sinners. Uh, just no one has to teach us. It, it comes very natural to us. And the natural uh, consequence for sin is judgment. That's the other thing these people believed in that most people today don't. They believed in an actual hell. That hell was, was as real as, as China. Maybe it's not on this earth, but it's, it's somewhere. And you're in danger of going there if you die without a Savior to save you from your sins. So I said this is, this is misunderstood. The thing is, when Edwards talks about like hold, God being like holding this, us like a spider over the pit of hell, this isn't God torturing us. This is God keeping us from falling into the flames. This is God's grace. This is God's mercy. We're in the hands of an angry God. He is angry at us. He should be because we're sinners, but he is holding us up. That's what mercy is. And so, I said I was going to read you a few excerpts. Um, the passage here, Deuteronomy 32, 35, their foot shall slide in due time. 
And the way Edwards describes this, he says, it's like you're walking along a path and it's a slippery path and you're standing now, but at any moment you could go down, you could wipe out. And that's how life is like. That, you know, we stand now, you're alive, but at any moment it's all over. And then you're just done and you're going to just descend to, to where, where gravity takes you. He says, and there's nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. Edwards writes, he talks, he says this, he says, unconverted men, this is people without a savior, walk over the pit of hell on a rotten covering. So imagine you're, you're walking over hell and there's these, you know, a, a plywood covering or something, but it, it's, it's rotten, okay, and it's keeping you out of there. It says, they walk over the pit of hell in a rotten covering and there are innumerable places in this covering so weak that they will not bear their weight and their places are not seen. We go through life, and we're being held out of this, but there, at any moment, we could step in the wrong place and write down. Edwards writes this, Your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead, and to tend downward with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf. And your healthy constitution, your own care and prudence, and the best contrivance, and all your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and to keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. That it is, it's the weight of our own sin that drops us into hell. That it's, God is holding us up, and all he has to do is just not hold us up anymore. And just, we, that's where we naturally would go. It's the weight of our sin that drops us down as heavy as lead. In the passage where he talks about the, uh, the spider being, being dangled, it, it goes on and says this, It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night, he says, but that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you have not gone to hell since you have sat here in the house of God, provoking his pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner and attending his solemn worship. Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you do not at this very moment drop down into hell. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. Wow. I mean, those are, those are heavy, powerful words. But he's giving these out of love, making them realize this is the danger that you are in if you are without Christ. That any moment, you could go. That any moment, and after this, to, to die is, is once, and after this comes the judgment. But again, remember, this is saying sinners in the hands of an angry God, it is good to be in his hands. That's the point of this. You're, you would be giving a chance. You are given opportunity while he still holds you up to turn and to repent and to come to him in faith. That's the whole point of this whole sermon. Towards the end, Edward says this, And now you have an extraordinary opportunity, a day wherein Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open and stands in calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners, a day wherein many are flocking to him, and pressing into the kingdom of God. Many are daily coming from the east, west, north, and south. Many that were very 
lately in the same miserable condition that you are in, are now in a happy state with their hearts filled with love to him who has loved them and washed them from their sin in his own blood and rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. How awful is it to be left behind at such a day? So this sermon, this was primarily addressed to those that were outside of Christ, those that hadn't yet received Christ and trusted him as Savior. It's a passionate plea for them to realize the eternal danger they're in and to, to flee to Christ to salvation while they still have opportunity. If you're here, you're alive, you're breathing, you're not in hell, you're still being held in God's hands. But if you don't have Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have to know that isn't going to last forever. You don't know how long it's going to be. You are not promised 80 years in this life. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day to, for you to turn to him, to accept this free offer. He has paid it all. He came to die on the cross, not for good people, but for sinners like me and like you. You can turn to him and have your sins washed away. And so instead of being over the, the pit of hell, that once you're in Christ, you're, you're on the solid rock that you have salvation, you have security in Jesus Christ because of what he has done. That Jesus Christ took all of this wrath and all of this, this, this fearfulness and he took it upon himself when he went to the cross in your place. It is not a surprising thing that a righteous judge, for a righteous judge should judge the guilty. It is surprising for an offended God to continue to hold the guilty in his hands and give him this opportunity. You know, this, I said, is the most famous sermon that Jonathan Edwards has. Um, it's one he's, uh, for many people he's known for. Actually, he preached more about God's love and about heaven than he did about sin and wrath and hell. But he's known for this one. And it is important. We do need to talk about these things. And we need to talk about passages like in Deuteronomy where it expresses judgment and, and, and the anger that, that comes from rebelling against God. And we need to do that because hell is real. Okay, and hell is terrible. And hell is eternal. And it is not the preacher who pleads with his people to escape the danger of hell who is unloving. It is the preacher who just soothes the mind of the perishing. That's the one who doesn't love his people. Okay, a fireman who brings a pillow to a child in a burning house is not a good person. Flee to Jesus. Come to him. So that's the second big question. When your story's done, will you find the vengeance that we deserve or will you find eternal life that has already been provided for you through Jesus Christ? Finally, when your story is done, will you have lived a life of faith, a life of believing God, trusting in God? I want to start reading here in uh, chapter thirty. Two, actually, starting with verse 48. That very day the Lord spoke to Moses, Go up this mountain of the Abram, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab opposite Jericho, and view the land of Canaan, view the promised land. He's telling them to go up this mountain and see it. Telling a 120-year-old guy to climb this mountain. Okay, but we're going to see it's going to be, it's actually going to be a one-way trip. Which I am giving to the people of Israel for possession, and die on the mountain which you go up 
and be gathered to your people, as Aaron your brother died in Mount Hor and was gathered to his people, because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel at the waters of Merzbah Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, and because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel, for you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go there into the land that I am giving to the people of Israel. Then chapter 33 is these final blessings uh, to the different tribes of Israel. Let's go over to chapter 34, the, the last chapter here. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead, as far as Dan and Naphtali, and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh. These are all the places that the different tribes would settle in. And all the land of Judah, as far as the western sea, and then the Gav, and the plain that is in the valley of Jericho, and the city of palm trees, as far as Zor. As he was way up there, you could see a lot of these, or maybe God gave him visions of parts that he couldn't physically see, but he's seeing this. He wouldn't go into it, but the Lord gave him to be able to see what the next generation, where they would go, fulfilling God fulfilling his promises. Verse 4, And the Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, a servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Bethpor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Notice here, Moses went up there alone and says he buried him. It's like God himself buried him in a place where no one knows where this was. We're to, we're to remember Moses, um, to learn from him, but we're not to worship him. We're not to build shrines to him. Um, but God buried him. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. Because there's a time for weeping. And there's a time to, to still remember. But to not weep in that way and to, and to move on. Let's pause here for a moment. Because I have this point and I said, when your story is done, will you have lived a life of faith? And then I read here and it talked about uh, Moses broke faith with God. And that's why he didn't get to enter the land because there was this episode that happened. It was uh, Numbers 20 uh, where Moses was supposed to speak to the rock this time and water was to come forward. And he did what he did the last time and he struck the rock, which was disobedient. And there was, we had a whole sermon. We talked about what was wrong with that. And God gave him this, this consequence that because of this, this faithlessness and disobedience, he wouldn't go into the promised land. He'd be able to see it but not go in. And that's what happens here. So yes, Moses was, he was shown the promised land, but he wouldn't be able to enter because of this rebellion. Now, although Moses, he's held accountable for this failure, we know that he's still a man of great faith. And we know that because we go ahead to the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, for example. There, in Hebrews 11, there's what's called the, uh, the Hall of Faith this list of these Old Testament heroes and, and the faith that they had, trusting God, believing in him. And we want to look at this as we, as we finish up. And it gives us a summary, a looking back of Moses' life here. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. 
By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ, other translations say disgrace for the sake of Christ, he considered this greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Moses was a man of great faith who forsook the treasures of Egypt because he was looking to a better reward. Notice that in the, in the middle there. He could have had all these, these pleasures of Egypt. He could have been next in line to be Pharaoh and had all these riches and servants, physical pleasure and all of this, comforts in life. But he realized there was something greater. There was a greater treasure that was worth it for him to leave all of that behind to seek the Lord and to find real and lasting satisfaction in God. A treasure that that doesn't fade, that isn't fleeting and little, but is much greater and more intense and lasts and lasts forever and ever. Everyone who hears me, we must do the same. There's so much fleeting pleasure this world offers us. In faith, we need to believe God and believe that the greater treasure is following him, having a relationship with him, trusting him, living for his glory, and the best is yet to come. Let me finish just by reading the very end of 34. Deuteronomy. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for Moses and the truths that were taught through him. But even more, we thank you that Moses pointed ahead to another prophet who is yet to come, to a new and better Moses, who would be faithful, not just as a servant, but as a son. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ, who did not just give us the law, but who kept the law in the place of sinners, and who died on the cross and rose for the salvation of anyone that would rest their trust in Christ alone. Lord, thank you that by your grace, you hold sinners in your hand to keep them from hell even now, crying loud for them to turn to Jesus to save them. And Lord, I pray that anyone here that doesn't have that certainty of knowing you before they leave this room, would turn to you and rest upon Jesus Christ as a solid rock of their salvation, the one that died and took the wrath of God for them. Lord, we thank you for Jesus, 
who took what we deserve. We give you praise. In the name of our Savior, we pray. Amen.